Hello and welcome to episode nine of The Horus Heretics. I'm one of your hosts, Neil McComb. And I'm your other host, William Hepburn. Today we'll be uh, starting a new book, Fulgrim by Graham McNeil. This is the fifth book of the series and is really the first one to diverge from moving the plot forward. It's more taking a look at one of the legions, uh, the Emperor's Children and Fulgrim himself. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, admittedly, we've only read, or at least I've only read the first half of it. I don't know, I assume it's the same for you, but uh, I th- that certainly seems to be the case. You mentioned before coming on, um, before we recorded, William, that the, you you had started to feel that you wanted to stop reading these. Is that, is that what you said? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not yet. Um, but what I'm saying, what what... Uh, I was trying to say was this book was the first one that started to remind me of the feeling I had when I originally read these books that led me to stop reading them right so that was when I'd read the first four and I was like cool you know this is a epic sweeping narrative big things are going to happen and then the book started like the, the first half of this one they started just filling out all the details for no particular reason you know what i mean other than mm-hmm. just like war for war's sake background for background's sake um and it's not to say it's not quite good but it's it can be really repetitive because it's the same pattern of you know just in slightly different ways how people get lured into following chaos and stuff like that um and so there's a danger i feel there's a danger this is the point the danger of fatigue setting in Okay. Um, comes so we have to f- together we have to fight through that we have forge to ahead hold on to you know what we hold dearly like characters like Eidolon um, <laughs> yeah I act on crews uh, things sadly, like that you know sadly missing from this book <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway yeah so just yeah. so unlike our book from our bonus episode <laughs> which has a driving narrative it just will not stand still this book suffers from standing still a little <laughs> bit, but um, we will we will attempt to add our own touch of class to it. I mean, just... spoiler: no chaos gods die in this book. That's a missed opportunity. Missed opportunity for everyone, but I, I guess an opportunity for us to get in because people want that good, good content. Um, so let's dive in. Let's talk about. I thought we would. Do, you do this a little bit differently and we'll see how we go by talking about we'll talk about the plot first and then talk a little bit about Fulgrim himself and the <coughs> Emperor's children um, because this is mostly about them the book is called Fulgrim but there is there isn't that much plot anyway and what there is sort of left me a little bit cold anyway let's let's go ahead with that wonderful intro it starts off there are remembrancers on uh, the this expedition with the emperor's children, I think we'll get to them. I quite like them, or I, at least they have the possibility for doing something with them that I like. No, no, I was just going to say the remembrancers are kind of significant in this story, in the sense that, well, we'll get onto this with the emperor's children, but they're at least there's a sort of meant to be an angle to them that they appreciate art and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and <laughs> I've. There is a quote that doesn't fit anywhere except here. It's the first line of the book, and it, it tells us about one of the remembrancers, Ostian Delafour, which is a great name. Um, he is a um, sculptor, and the the line, first line of the book is, the danger for most of us, Ostian Delafour would say, on those rare occasions when he was coaxed to speak of his gifts, <laughs> is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low. And we hid it. He would then <laughs> smile modestly and attempt to recede into the background of whatever conversation was underway. <laughs> like, what a twat! <laughs> um, what a twat. I was like, oh, I hope he's in this book more. What a complete knob. As we've discussed for earlier books, uh, the depiction of artists in these books is really funny. Everyone in this book, everyone is sort of introduced with a line and you're like I know exactly who that person is <laughs> I know exactly who this um, the stereotype you're trying to hit is 
Well, yeah, there's this opera, sort of fiery opera singer. Bekwa Kinska. Yeah, and she <laughs> she's, she gets into a... Sorry, this is slightly on a tangent. She gets into a sort of argument with a with someone in her audience who um, isn't, oh, appre- yeah. <laughs> isn't appreciating her music. He, he responds by saying, You insult me, woman. I am Paljor George Georgie, sixth Marcus of Marquis of the Terawatt clan. <laughs> Terrawad clan. <laughs> I was like, that would, that would, uh, that just makes me think of like some post-apocalyptic Mad Max scenario, you know, the yeah, Terrawad ter- clan would be ter- like. clan, they, they control the power generation in the sector. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, you're right, that was off topic and we are, we are known for being on topic <laughs> and staying rigidly to Tight our structure. structure. Yeah. Yeah. First battle, we're introduced to this uh, alien species called the Lair, and the Emperor's children are fighting them on one of their planets. Uh, what to say about this? This is described so badly. Um, no, really, it is. Um, we've said before that the high points for a lot of the other books have been the, their description of place and of like alien worlds and, and alien battlegrounds. I don't know what to say about this battleground. The, there are atolls floating in the air. They're like big shells, big floating shells, I think. Yeah, it's all like the whole planet is a water planet, apart from these atolls that float above it and are, yeah, sort of described as shells or something. Yeah. Coral, coral sort of yeah. substance. Um, and, uh, there's wines used like when I read this wine, I thought this is only really comprehend readily comprehensible if you play video games and stuff like that. <laughs> it, it refers to um, a flaring plume of searing energy, like, and you think, what the fuck is that? Unless you play video games and you just know, like, instinctively that you know you get just sort of it's the vertical shaft of energy that's going straight <laughs> up into the sky. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and I've got it written here middle paragraph and this is i think is just down to bad editing and, and books not books being turned out too fast it's just a straight up bad piece of writing in the middle of page 27 you know we love those it's not an interestingly bad piece of writing it's just a very prosaically bad piece of writing so the legion was hungry to prove itself and fulgrim has thrown his all into making up for the time lost while he had rebuilt his legion seeking to push the boundaries of the imperium yet further and prove the courage and worth of his legion Ooh, Legion. Just a weird tautology um, yeah. that would have been yeah. edited out, you know, like, but um, that's kind of what we're getting. But, you know, one th- one thing that kept, I took from this is, like, obviously it's throughout these books that there's encounters with alien species that the space marines just obliterate. But this is the one that just, one of the ones that just horrified me the most, right? On page 28, it's one of the most worst sentiments I've seen given by any character in here where um, Fulgrim's talking about these aliens and he's saying only humani- humanity is perfect and for an alien race to hold its own ideals and technology as comparable to ours is profane. No, the the Lair deserve only extinction. Mm. So the cleansing of Lairon was begun and it's like, for some reason it really got to me more than it had before that uh, just how awful they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 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 bit that got to me about this is sort of towards the end, I think, of part two, when Serena, who is a, a painter, uh, one of the remembrancers, she goes down to the planet and is sort of bowled over by the beauty of the planet and of being being there to see the work of the Astartes and stuff, and the colours that she sees, and she's taking pictures and is like planning and composing her the paintings that she will create from this and she sees the um the bodies of the the lair just piled up all around and it says not even the bodies of the lair could you know impinge upon her delight at seeing what she was seeing and it was just like the complete sort of dehumanization whatever that word would be for an alien species yeah and it's yeah i know it's like the total imperialism all the way from the the warriors to the to the you know the remembrancers and everything but i couldn't i couldn't get it from 
the side of the lair because I, can you remember what they looked like? Like there was there was no description given to them at all. They were just like, well, you know, they weren't humanoid. They were. Oh no, that's right. They had snakes, snake bodies. <laughs> that's right. How that's could right. I forget? Oh my god. <laughs> they were they were they were centaurs, but with a snake's body. <laughs> I had actually, I had completely forgotten that as well. Yeah. Until you just, where did, where, I, where did they, did they have, they didn't have like human top ends though, did they? They were just like, they were not just like giant I, reptiles. Uh, n- no. I mean, I was sort I of, I can't remember what, oh no, they had insect heads. That's right. <laughs> anyway. Well, obviously it wasn't memorable, was it? I mean, we. No, no. It, I mean, after that description. You should have a species that you're like, oh, this is amazing. They've got a stupid snake's body and an insect head. Let's let let's have them eating the heads off warriors and stuff and slithering all over. But no, it's really it's really quite boring. Just the whole way this bit was written just somehow didn't like didn't land. Land, yeah. Um. So this is the initial incursion onto this planet. There's only a small force, and it's going badly. The um, or it's not going badly, but it's it's tough going. These warriors are real tough. In the meantime, Fulgrim is meeting with all his army generals and the rest of his legion and stuff, and making the case for going on a full-on assault. And of course, he plays them, and permission is given. So they all head down to the planet and make for this central atoll which is um, the the heart of the culture. And of course, because it's an um, alien uh, race, it is the, the heart of their religious culture. Of course it is, because they're heathens. So they make towards it. There's a, a meticulous plan. There's a lot of time given over to how perfect the planning is and how every legion has to work in this sort of clockwork manner in order to make these plans come off anyway they make for the the central temple and there is this there's like a pink gas is that right will there's a a pink gas that people breathe in and start becoming chaos infected oh yeah 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 they talk about just this pink mist or whatever so they fight their way into the temple where it's dark but they're drawn on somehow. They feel um, this pink mist shit is like drawing them on and heightening their senses. And they find a pit of all of these Laren having an orgy, which is nice. But they're obviously disgusted by it. And in the middle of this pit is a sword, like a silver-handled sword that Fulgrim goes over and pulls out of the stone that it's in and there is like this chaos voice this is the first this is his first sort of dabbling with chaos and it has infected him in some way and that's it like there is no more i don't know there is no more detail than that it's really frustrating we yeah i mean they all various characters come away from this temple with some sort of you know life-changing experience they had there and they want to get that feeling back, and they can't really describe it necessarily. Fulgrim ends up with a voice in his head telling him to do things, um, but it all feels really like by the numbers. Like the it, this sort of chaos moment just feels like, oh, we just got to get this done, you know? Like it's not, there's no sort of revelation to it. We know what's going on mm-hmm. basically from the previous books, where it was more, it felt more significant, you know, when the the um, chaos stuff was coming into it, but and I would have um, been much happier without this chaos shit, and frankly, without the battles as well. Because, as I've said a few minutes ago, this is called Fulgrim. It's about Fulgrim, and I suppose you need a battle or two in there. But the best stuff is unusually for these books, not the battles. It's the sort of the color it gives to the emperor's children. Whether that could sort of make a good book, I suppose, is well yet to be yet to be found because there's more of this book to go. There's so much like so much of these books that sort of opens a path to saying something quite interesting and then never follows it. Uh, like 
So, you know, the, the books frequently talk about, as you say, the space marines being disgusted by these aliens and stuff like that. And, like, sometimes that's, like, a thing you can... If you imagine, like, a, a massive temple full of snakes writhing around, that probably is a bit um, creepy to witness. But uh, <laughs> they, they never really... I don't know. There's never really sort of a critical... It's in the background, but they never really go as far as they could with this idea that, like, the space marines just have, like, this terrible burden of prejudice or whatever that makes them just want to completely wipe out everything that differs from, you know, human Mm -hmm. standards or whatever. They kind of touch on it, but it's never really followed in an interesting way. I think that's us wanting too much, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Um, On this... um final battle approach when the ships are going down there is a line that i wanted wanted to mention um one of the ships crashes and the quote is miraculously the co-pilot was still alive though his flesh was horribly burned and his skin was on fire (laughs) um your flesh will be burned if your skin's on fire it will (laughs) Oh yeah, <laughs> skins. Yeah, I, I remember that one. Actually. So, uh, we should mention at this point that Fabius Bile, which is a great name, he is the apothecary, and he had this. There was a really terrible scene with him and Fulgrim, where Bile basically talks about perfection and how we need to be more perfect, and so he started um, experiments on the progenoid glands they're the the bits of the astartes that make them special that are implanted into normal humans and fulgrim is like this is the worst thing you could possibly do oh no you've made it even worse oh no you keep saying things to make it even worse and then fabius ball says no actually it's good and fulgrim goes okay you've got my blessing (laughs) it's It's really stupid. Fab- Fabius is he's quite an enjoyable character in our I, I want more of him. Like I, I I can hear his voice. He is a, a Frankensteinian yeah. kind of he's a, he's a cat coin sort of hammer horror yeah. mad scientist type. I want more of him. Um so that is uh, basically that's happening at the same time. Uh we we hear that um the Emperor's children and Fulgrim are going to meet up with Ferris Manus, who is another another Primarch, Primarch of the Iron Hands, so named because Ferris Manus has iron hands. Um, and <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I know, I know. And Ferris Manus is a, a, a appalling name, but is not the worst name of any of the Primarchs. Like it. We're going to have to hold our noses when we come to the Dark Angels, aren't we? <laughs> we will. It's going to be pretty difficult. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll get we'll, we'll get there soon. I think it's not far off for the first really? dark, dark Angels okay. book. Yeah. Again, they say that oh, Ferris Manus is closest to Fulgrim out of any of the Primarchs. No Primarch share such a bond. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Again, again. Uh, they're all. There's all, they're always all... the most something. Yeah. But we'll talk about them later on, I think. They've been having a, a bit of trouble with this species, which uh, unfortunately are called the Diasporex. That is a... Ugh. But the Diasporex sound fucking great, right? Yeah. This sort of alliance of alien species. That's peaceful. It. Well, no, not not necessarily peaceful, but not, not starting a fight here. Yeah, they're just trying to run away. Um, mm-hmm. And most um, of the rest of the book is... Uh, that Ferris Manus has been chasing after them and struggling to get them and then Fulgrim and the Emperor's children have to go and help them. Yeah, yeah, and in the end they do and there's a little bit more about chaosy bullshit about the the voice in Fulgrim's head is um, getting stronger and causing him to, you know, dislike his brother and that kind of thing. Yeah, and the... The, the final sort of battle of the first half is they fire themselves in torpedoes onto the Diasporax ship and fight their way through to the bridge and there's a big alien so there's like humans and aliens working together and there's a big alien thing is like the navigator or whatever of the ship and it's been killed by a stray bullet 
I actually thought this kind of got me a little bit. <laughs> like, um, one of, well, we've not gone to the characters yet, but one of the characters, Solomon Demeter, uh, he comes up to this alien. He kind of hears it groaning as it's dying and wants to like hear what it's saying. Somehow he knows, somehow he can understand its speech. And it's it says, all we wished was to be left alone. And I was like, oof. That's, <laughs> it's hit to the heart. It actually did a wee bit, though. So I've got to say, like, uh, just... After all the devastation you see, and you're like, "Oh Jesus, um, these bastards!" Like just yeah. chasing down these, these, uh, these civilizations that just, you know, yeah. Uh, and and this book isn't isn't more sort of um, dedicated more towards like the feelings of alien races because this creature, who is strapped into the captain's seat, took a stray bullet which took off the top of his skull. <laughs> So he is sort of weeping blood all down his head at the same time as uh, as this is happening. So, right. So, shall we talk? Yeah, that's part done, isn't it? Yeah. So we can talk about characters and the Legion at the minute. And I just wanted to say that this book is a a poe faced prudish fucking book. Bekwa Kinska. We can talk about her. She's the uh, blue haired opera singer that William mentioned. She is a libertine and she is really fun. She's a really fun character, but this book just paints her as being awful. And I suppose she is, but Ostian, who is painted as being shy and demure, like he's a, he's a dickhead. And the book seems to make us want to think that he is like, you know, the ideal person. And all the interesting characters are painted as awful people. And um, yeah, this leads me on to something that, I mean, <laughs> I don't think we want to, but I think we need to address sexuality in these books. Go um, on. <laughs> and I'll, I'll open the conversation with this line, page 63. Um, page 63. Follow along in your editions at home, readers. <laughs> so this is an encounter between the two characters you've just been talking about. <laughs> talking about. <laughs> Sorry, this is so funny. Um, and Bekwa Kinska is talking to Ostian and she says, I must admit that I find the prospect of war quite stirring, don't you? Gets the blood pounding and sets the loins afire with the sheer maleness of it all. Don't you find that, Ostian? <laughs> Oh God, I I have that written down. I'll 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 tell you the quote, and I'll tell you my note on it. Uh, it's describing Bequa in the same scene. The front of her dress was scandalously low, and Ostian found himself sweating as he felt his eyes drawn to the barely contained curve of her breasts. I was like, oh, now that is terrible. Yeah, there was That's, a lot of yeah. That's the line I had. That was sickening. And then there's that line, and my note of that was, but this is worse. Wait, was there not some Twitter account or some or website or something about, like, men writing women and, like... Bad the, sex. And, like, just embarrassingly... Embarrassing, like, male-centric like, yeah. descriptions of, of women in books. And, yeah, that's, like... But listen to this line. I'm not ashamed... It comes directly after the, the, the maleness of the blood pounding in the loins. I'm not ashamed to admit that the thought of the thunder of guns and the crash of fighting gets me all hot and bothered, if you know what I mean. I don't, if you know what I mean. Oh, Jesus Christ. Hot it's, and bothered. Oh, my God. It's so bad. And you know what, right? That's it's not got, even male, though. That's that's like that's like somebody who hasn't felt arousal in their life. Well, I know. It's just... Oh, it's just bad. Um, <laughs> and converse... Well, not really conversely, but as a... As a side note to this, the if there's any lines that are more effective in a highly Mills and Booney kind of way <laughs> uh, in describing sort of romantic feelings, it's when Space Marines see Primarchs. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> it's full of that. <laughs> like the, the quickened pulses. <laughs> <laughs> the quickened pulses that just gets those Space Marines rock hard. <laughs> which, which made me think... It made me think with a sense of pure inevitability that there has to be like Space Marine slash fiction out there. <laughs> oh yeah, that could be a little. If we do, 
if we do succumb to that um <laughs> that sort of ennui that you're feeling at these books we should do a slash fiction episode <laughs> that would be fantastic where where there's just like uh, line officers just jizzing themselves whenever a <laughs> a primark walks by um but like I, did you feel that those are that's in all the books but in this one in particular like they do that when Fulgrim's around, but then like the thought of Fulgrim and Ferris Manus in the same room just filled him. Like one of them couldn't even remember his name when when Ferris Manus like talks to him. There's sorry, I just like I have notes in this and it's just all over the fucking shop. So um, I don't have any structure to give you news. What I'm saying. Okay, okay. Well, we did have uh, William did mention this happened near the start of the book that there was an opera put on for all the remembrancers and the emperor's children and Bequa is singing and it shows that the emperor's children are the only legion so far to care for art it turns out that this tendency of their legion is highly inconsistent throughout like there's there's one like one of the characters basically gets slagged off for reading poetry um that's why I'm like, yeah. for someone says, you've been reading poetry again, haven't you? Um, <laughs> yeah, that is, that was weird. I only bring this up, this scene up, because Beck Wakinska walks past a harpsichord. <laughs> and and I was like, is that a, is that going to be a character in this book? The harpsichord? Is that a Chekhov's harpsichord? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it wasn't mentioned again. Oh. But I'm, I'm, free, I'm afraid that, instrument is not ruined for me because <laughs> whenever i see one whenever i see it written down i will exp- i will <laughs> i will expect it to become enormous and to provide shade for a battle scene <laughs> so what um what i thought was funny when they're they're talking about art and stuff this is where one of them gets sort of made fun of for liking poetry and so they're showing themselves to be you know some of them anyway be pretty boorish in this conversation or or you know just thinking, ah, oh, look at you, you stupid nerd, you know, liking art <laughs> and stuff. And um but even they <laughs> even they see Eidolon as particularly boorish, right? Because <laughs> yeah. someone mentions that Eidolon has a painting and then this other marine's like, Never, Eidolon uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um I've got a few quotes that don't really fit in anywhere. There is another character, Marius. And the quote of him, uh, again, the Emperor's children, seeking perfection in all things. This line made me just sort of chuckle to myself about Marius. The idea of not being the best made him feel physically sick. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a physical sensation to these people. This whole perfection thing is stupid, right? Aside from the fact that they do a bunch of stupid shit consistently. Yeah. like, um, And perfection, like... I'm I'm not perfect. I'm not anywhere near perfect. I'm especially not a soldier. But yeah, I'm going. Don't do that. That's wrong. And perfect, and I, yeah. I can see it. Perfection is also just not really a gimmick, right? Like per- perfection is a level of like is complete goodness in any particular thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not actually a thing, and that's why it never they never really pin down exactly what they mean by that. Sometimes they sort of it sort of means like artistry and flair is kind of what they're suggesting other times it's it's like efficiency and combat and stuff like that um but they're clearly not uh perfect and they also they basically imply on uh that at one point that the ultramarines are essentially more perfect in the yeah. ways they are meant to be perfect so it's like i don't know but what, also but also by griefing the ultramarines about this aspect of their personality which makes them more perfect than you know um, and I'm, yeah, like Fulgrim's apparently brilliant plan seems pretty, at one point, seems pretty not brilliant in that like, loads of people die for it to be carried out. So, I mean, maybe that's the point. They think they're perfect, but... Yeah, well, I've got another character who haven't spoken about, Kaiseron. He is the equivalent of Eidolon. He's, they apparently have two grand masters. And it's a basically, basically a description of him. Uh, <laughs> it's very fun. Um, dressed in the triumphal purple toga and the martial red of his Lycerna cloak, 
he cut an imposing figure as he marched swiftly to the Heliopolis, <laughs> followed by his equerry Lycaon and a retinue of bearers who carried his helmet, sword, and trailing cloak. A pendant of fiery amber hung around his neck and nestled between the carved pectorals of his golden breastplate. <laughs> so, it's quite an entrance, really, yeah. It's quite an entrance. So he has, like, the perfect Greek warrior's breastplate. He's in a purple and red toga. That's mental. I would love to see that. I mean... This is probably a good point to try to define who the characters are in this book, which I don't think I ever ma- managed. Uh, me neither. They're, I, I could tell you their names and maybe their positions, but they all blended into one. So there's Solomon Demeter, who I vaguely remember his name was mentioned when the Emperor's children were involved in previous books, I think. Yeah, as a sort of side character to Saul Tarvitz. Yeah, and then there's... Marius and Julius, and I had real trouble remembering which of these was which and what their characters were meant to be. Marius seems to be the perfect emperor's child. He only cares about perfection, perfection, perfection. And Julius, is, I think, is meant to be the main protagonist, a lot, kind of alongside Solomon, their friends. Yeah. Um, but they they do have real interest in art and in all things. Um, do, do you not think like, the, uh, ca- the character sort of feeds into how this, this first half of this book just seemed to really lack a cent- I mean, stuff happens, but it seems to really lack a central narrative. Like, it's just a it, bunch it, of stuff. It totally lacks a central narrative. And I wonder, like, I wonder how this book was envisioned, where, whether there was, like, okay, you write about this bit of plot and then... He submitted all these like random files and bits of paper with like scribbles all over them, and he just went, "I don't know how to make a story out of this. Just it's about Fulgrim." And for as much as I would like a story about Fulgrim and about the Emperor's children, um, there seems to be nothing tying this together. I can I've I've got a few quotes here that don't fit in anywhere, but they're they're really good. Okay, let's hear. Um, Idolon, our boy. He's back, and he is—he is sort of um, at least the run of making Idolon look really stupid continues, because <laughs> Idolon has this huge impression of himself and doesn't think he's looking stupid, but he always is, and I like that a lot. Um, but in this line, Idolon looked unimpressed at the gathered warriors, while Vespasian humors were unreadable. <laughs> so, <laughs> they couldn't read Vespasian humors, yeah, well, and. The remembrancers didn't get off lightly. Uh, this must have. This is from Lycaon, uh, a character who I, well, we just described. He is the um, equerry to Caesaron, but again, those are names that are feeding into one for me. He he is not a fan of uh, the remembrancers. Following his gaze, Lycaon spat, Remembrancers, what purpose do Scriveners and their ilk serve at a council of war? <laughs> Look, one of them has even brought an easel. <laughs> <laughs> He's painting our council of war. <laughs> Which, like, you know, stop having a go at these people for being Scriveners and stuff, but way. in fairness, don't bring an easel to the council of war. <laughs> you know, he does have a point. <laughs> Tucked under an arm of a remembrance. The sheer level of the cliches of the remembrancers. Like, just, it's like they're just they're just flouncing around the ship wearing berries and like sprawled across <laughs> chaise longs with like glasses of wine in their hand. Uh, Serena, uh, in all her conversations with Ostian, calls him dear boy. <laughs> Oh god! I mean, we've sort of ripped into this book, but every now and again, there was a line or something or a scene where I was just delighted by it. There, there's a lot. There was a lot of lines that I found really funny that were not prone, most of which weren't meant to be funny. Um, Kin- like Kinska is a libertine. Like she is literally described as that, and she is all, She is like a, a world famous operatic singer. And she was famous on Terra and she just got really bored because she couldn't find anything to satisfy her sort of libertine desires and so went on crusade. And um, it's 
describes her, What new sensations did a bleak, empty world like Terra have to offer a libertine of her Epicurean palate? <laughs> well, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, yeah, she's literally maxed out the earth. Um, that's what yeah. they were saying there, yeah. Um, what is this one I really enjoyed when they're fighting the wearer who we've talked about who were living in these coral sort of atolls that floated above the ocean. <laughs> and at one point, uh, so Julius is, is on one of these atolls and they're fighting through them. And it says, The unbidden thought suddenly worried him. Were the atolls of the wear alive? Had anyone thought to check? <laughs> Just find that really funny. <laughs> Had anyone thought to check? <laughs> like, do it. You're there. <laughs> Someone check if these atolls are alive, mate. <laughs> No one fucking checked if these atolls are alive. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what am I doing? Always with you? me. Always me. You'll have to think up these thoughts. I'm always like, has anyone checked if the planet is alive that we're on? First fucking thing we do, we check if the landscape we're on is is a creature. Uh, but that's unfortunate it's a side effect of all Star Trek episodes now. It's like first thing I think about when the when any sci-fi thing encounters a new thing like is the ship alive is the planet alive is the storm alive is there sentience to this thing it it's my first thing now (laughs) in in all sci-fi it will probably be for the rest of my life (laughs) discussed the emperor's children a bit so the iron hands i thought it was very very black library when the first character we meet of the iron hands first character we properly meet has iron hands brilliant yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so this was this guy Balhan, and then and so they're clearly going all in with the gimmick and, and like you said uh ferris manis i it took me i was like uh, is this a sort of you know metaphor but no he's got actual like liquid metal yeah hands yeah yeah uh it's i, I don't know what to say <laughs> Um, he does, and and this this is a good uh, example of which comes up a, a bit in this book. The, the Primarchs seem to be on the one hand, they're just large men essentially who are very good at fighting. On the other, they're they're actual mythical, uh, yeah, beings. You know, because there's a whole like very Norse mythology style section in this about how Ferris Manus and Fulgrim forged their close bond by. Uh, when they first the f- met, they went to a, a blacksmith's workshop. Well, you know, uh, Primark's blacksmith's <laughs> workshop. And they had a competition so you could make the best weapon. And then they gave each other the weapons they made. And this was like, it talks about something like, it's like saying that one of the weapons they made could level a mountain and stuff like this, you know, yeah. this very mythical kind of language, but other times they're kind of just larger, better space marines, you know, it's a wee bit. I, I, I sort of took that as the um, the sort of mythology that forms around um, the, the meeting of two brothers and stuff. I, I could sort of believe that. I didn't find it um, discordant or anything like that. Um, but I suppose we should talk about the Iron Hands and about Ferris Manus. And again, because no subtlety can be allowed to stand in these books without <laughs> being ironed out, although they are the closest of friends and closest of brothers of any of the Primarchs, you won't believe this, but they're almost completely different. High intriguing. What a wonderful storytelling technique. Whereas... Fulgrim loves art and, you know, the pleasures of the senses. Ferris Manus is quite brusque and and dumb, like dumb, quick to anger. And again, the, the kind of stupidity, honest stupidity is painted here as being um, in every way, excuse me, is painted as being in every way better than the sort of underhanded cleverness of Fulgrim. You know, he, he, he's educated. Ah, you know what education leads to? Becoming a monster. There's one quite funny scene illustrating this when Ferris Manus comes into 
Fulgrim's chamber or whatever and sees oh, some it's of the, his It's the best scene of the book. <laughs> I, this, the rest of the book hasn't been that great. This scene is legitimately hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, go on. Are you wanting to... Oh, no, I thought you wanted oh, to... Oh, no, so, sorry. No, well, basically, I, all I had to say was, like, <laughs> Ferris Manus is coming in to chat to Fulgrim, and he sees some of, like, the artworks that he's been doing off in the corner, and he's like, he's like, who did those? They're a bit shit. <laughs> <laughs> it starts off, because um, Fulgrim, Ferris Manus uh, looks at some modern art, and, of course, he doesn't get modern art. He goes... <laughs> What are they supposed to be? <laughs> I can't even tell what they are. And Fulgrim gives him some fucking loose uh, description of 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 what they are. Oh yeah, I've written this down. They are recreations of reality formed according to the artist's metaphysical <laughs> value judgments. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> Ferris Manis not getting modern art and being like one of those boorish fucking losers who when faced with something they don't understand goes i can't even tell what that is okay fair enough one way to not explain what modern art is to somebody who doesn't like modern art is they are recreations of reality formed according to the artist's metaphysical value judgments <laughs> it's fucking and i was just like oh that is so funny and then Ferris Manus just goes, oh well, okay, and then moves over to some, to these other like sculpt sculptures and goes, what are these? These are shit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I don't get modern art, but I know what this is, and this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> Fulgrim like gets absolutely furious because these are his. <laughs> <laughs> and he has the, the, the total the total right reaction the total human reaction of like well let's not talk about that let's move on <laughs> to something else oh i love that scene <laughs> yeah, it was funny. i know it's like ferris manis has shown that he basically can't appreciate art on any level yet he still is able to identify that fulgrim's attempts are <laughs> <laughs> there is some more talk i wanted to bring up Julius, again, can't really remember who Julius is, goes to see Tobias, who's like seems to be the archivist in the library. Oh yeah. And says that like nothing is giving him pleasure anymore. None of the art, none of the paintings, after being down on the the atoll in the, the temple, being surrounded by this orgy. And um Tobias says that actually Julius, you're not this—you're not the only one to have come to me about this. And he starts talking about this fellow called Cornelius Blake. I assume, <laughs> I assume that's William Blake, right? About experience and um, it's it's an old Terran um philosopher right. called Cornelius Blake, and starts talking some shite about um experience and you know dedicating oneself to experience in order to learn more this event evander tobias character i thought was quite entertaining in some ways with like you'll probably appreciate this with his, i hated this scene <laughs> this this uh librarian stereotype <laughs> he's haranguing a sheepish group of remembrancers for some infraction of the strict rules of his library. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um but also he sounds like quite a shit archivist. You give me your uh, assessment of this, Neil, but it goes on about his... Uh, he, so he's got this Byzantine... He used to be like the best uh, iterator in the world or something. Yeah. Um, but now he's become an archivist and it says Julius is familiar with his Byzantine system of archiving, um, having spent many a fruitless hour trying to unearth some nugget of information. Um, that's... that's uh, that's a bad <laughs> it's a bad classification system um and i think there was an, another line about there that other people had had trouble with it and that tobias was like just like why can't people get this like, <laughs> it 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 just shows like the the most uh, that that is used as the stereotype of an archivist or a librarian and just like a second's thought you'd be like no that's the opposite of what they do 
and, <laughs> and there is there is none there is no archivist or librarian that first off creates their their own fucking classification system and then goes oh it doesn't work they'll learn they'll learn <laughs> it's actually really good and oh god it's just this page also has a very interesting wine it was not interesting it's just very good wine for its <laughs> level of badness um like when you read stuff about how to write well one of the key principles is you know don't say something with five words that you can say with one word yeah so um here it's meant it's talking about julius's julius the space marine the enhancements that he's had and it says <coughs> thanks to the surgeries and enhancements that have been wrought upon julius's chassis of meat and bone <laughs> <laughs> his body <laughs> oh god that's good why did that, that completely pass me by I don't even remember reading that <laughs> chassis of meat and bone <laughs> there is like going on from that point of view of like overwriting there is there is a a, a thing that a thread that goes throughout the entirety of the books that I think that all the authors struggle with describing you know the immenseness of the primarchs and their the intensity of the feelings that um, everyone has when in their presence and so they write them as like a near sexual experience but so much of it is also like they overwrite the the simplest of things. Like, here's here's one. Ferris Manus wore no helmet, and his battered face was like a slab of granite. Well, I'm fine with that bit, but um, his face was like a slab of granite, scarred from the ravages of two centuries of war among the stars. As he caught sight of his brother Primarch, his stern face broke apart in a warm grin of welcome. The sudden change, almost unbelievable in the completeness of its reversal. And you're like, yeah. he he smiled, like, yeah. <laughs> like he went from a sort of resting, stern face to smiling, and yeah. they're like the sudden he, they they have to describe that that small change as hu- huge and and like revelatory, yeah. and it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it's like in other places where they fall back on the on instead of like a good description, it's like. It was the most this. It went from the completeness of this to the completeness of that, and he was the most this to this other Primarch, and you know yeah. uh, they sought to be the perfect, and um, it's like just describing the extent of something rather than. Um, so I think we have uh, exhausted uh, my view, <laughs> my notes on this book. That's just done then, I think. Well, what a weird book that was to try to speak about. Overall, what do you think of it? I mean, I kind of, I kind of don't like the notion of something being so bad it's good, right? But I do think this book was not good. Yeah. And yet, I had some enjoyment in reading and thinking about it. Well, I mean, we do bring up terrible quotes every week that bring mm. us joy. But if- I would say that this has, uh, like, per page, there are more shit lines on it than most of the other books we've read. So, <laughs> which kind of made it fun, looking mm. at those. But the but. It wasn't like all the books have something bad about them. Yeah, don't get me wrong, but they've also usually always had something quite good about them. And sometimes that, even if it's just the battle scenes, yeah. they're well written. But I didn't think the battle scenes were very good in this one. No, no, I, it's part of the fact that the book feels so fragmentary that I don't, I, I didn't like it. But as I say, it per capita there is so many more bad lines which bring me joy but it's not it's not an enjoyment of the book i totally agree i hate the idea of so bad it's good it doesn't that doesn't fly for me at all if it's good it's good yeah it's bad it's bad these lines are bad but you can take joy in bad writing (laughs) it's not it that doesn't make me like the book it's just fun examples of the english language being used um I guess we'll see where it goes in the second half. I think, yeah, we'll be back in a week with the the finish to our 
bonus episode. Where, have you listened to that yet, Will? Uh, some of it, yeah. <laughs> some of it. Um, we'll we'll finish that off. I think there's a, another section of that, and then there may also be uh, another bonus episode we can scrounge out of that time, depending on depending on how the recording went. I haven't listened to any of that yet. Will, do you want to give a sign off? Okay. Tell everyone that we love them and um, to get in touch. Yeah, we need. Well, like I said, we we feel like we might struggle through the next few books, so um, so we need to all work to get, work together <laughs> to drive on into hopefully the books that actually move forward the overarching narrative because that's the stuff I really want to see. Um, so yeah, if you do want to email us, it's welcome. Thank you. It, Horusheretics <laughs> at gmail dot com. Oh yeah, yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks, Neil. Yeah, spread the word uh, about the podcast if you want to uh, if you like it next up we will finish off Fulgrim by Graham McNeil and then hopefully we'll be on to a better book or hopefully this book is in so many different parts that maybe the next ones will be absolute blinders yeah because um I think I think they're a spoiler ahead I think there's going to be a big cataclysmic event in this book which may uh which may be worth it Let's hope so. There might be a few bolter rounds fired in the second half of the book. Just so the next episode will be out on the twenty third of September. Join us then. Once again, thanks for listening. Will? Yep, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.